You are listening to Onward with William McCarthy, live from California, IA. How we doing? How we doing, everybody? Are you getting through it? Are you getting through it? I know things are intensifying. I just got the old, uh, got the booster shot yesterday. It was, uh, it was not bad. I did feel a little groggy, so if anybody's uh, getting to that place where it's time for them, go get it done, man. I had a uh, situation with a young man. I'm here in California, in Southern California, visiting my sister. And I was in line, and everybody was wearing masks, and the guy behind me wasn't. And it's, it's one of those things. It was like, do I say something? Do I say something? Do I say something? And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? Why not? Why not? And I just said, I posed as, as, a, as a question. Hey there, buddy. How you doing, man? He's like, good. He's looking at his phone. I just got to ask. I just got to ask. So everybody here is wearing their, uh, their mask. And you're not. What, what's, what's, can you explain that to me? And he's like, uh, because I really don't care. And I, inside of my veins, I felt like a volcano and I'm like, okay, reel it in, reel it in. Uh, let's be, let's be nurturing here. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know that, uh, we're wearing the masks to protect others, right? From us like we're wearing a mask in case we have something is to not infect other people and he looked at me and he's like yeah I don't care and it made me it made me kind of angry sad you know angry sad I was looking at him I'm like wow bro um okay that's crazy I have all these friends, you know, I have friends in, in the Netherlands and Germany and, and Britain and stuff. And a good friend of mine named Lisa, she's gotten COVID twice in 90 days. And she works for the National Health Service in Wales. And I'm like, wow, okay. So uh, you're just doing it your way, huh? And it's funny Then I, I come back to my sister's house and I have this conversation kind of, I guess you could say I was venting. I'm talking to her partner and I'm like, yeah, guy's not wearing a mask. And I, I couldn't believe it. And my sister's partner, Don, is like, yeah, the mask things, I just don't see the point. Why are we wearing them? And I'm, I'm like, wow, that is, that is definitely whatever this American freedom attitude is. And I know there's anti-vaxxing stuff happening. When I was on my bike this summer in Europe, I saw it in Italy. I saw it all over and I was just thinking, God, what is that? What is this? It's like a call to action where we're supposed to look out for one another. And I, it really makes me angry, sad to see people just kind of like, you know, it's not my problem. And so I go in there to get the uh, shot and I'm sitting there and the, uh, the doctor has got my sleeve up and stuff. And I'm like, man, we were losing 800 people a day in New York City uh, this year. So it was like basically like Pearl Harbor or, uh, or the World Trade Center like every week. And I'd say that was like a significant enough event that happened in my life that I'm never going to forget that. And I'm going to do whatever I can, even if it's annoying, to follow the protocol and try not to be a dick. 
So I don't know what it is with us, you know, with Americans. I don't know why we behave that way, but it's, it's interesting being out here on the road. Now, if anybody follows my social media or my Patreon or whatever, um, it may be, you're probably seeing that I'm in a van. This is week five short story there. I, uh, went through a breakup and I, you know, I, New York City is one of those places that you can't really be in the same neighborhood after a breakup because it's such tight quarters. So I left and I lived in Manhattan for a bit and I thought, all right, where do I go? And then I thought, wait, <laughs> bing, <laughs> the penny dropped. And I'm like, wait a second. I, my, my big project this year, I uh, bought a van and uh, built what I like to think of as a, a mobile studio. The name of the van is Vaniel Day-Lewis, the Honorable Vaniel Day-Lewis, a.k.a. Vanny Trejo. And I built it to be basically, I guess you could say like a recording studio slash um, production van. If you saw it, it kind of looks like uh, an all wood little cabin. And that was the vibe is that I wanted it to be very cozy. And what my dream is, what, that would eventually be actualized is me driving around telling stories about the people that I see. And this uh, booster booster shot gate uh, is just yet another story. So I wanted to talk today a little bit about this journey that I'm on. Um, I left New York. I've been away from New York for 20 years. I'm sorry, I've been away from California for 20 years. And I came back here. And there has been an incredible amount of emotion, but not like, like an eruption type of emotion, more like, you know, reflections. And I came in from the North and I have basically made my way for five weeks, like down the coast. And I've driven by my high school. I've driven by, you know, back roads I used to play in. I've driven by the hospital that I was born in, the beaches I played on. And I've been sort of on this, this journey of uh, rediscovery, rediscovering myself. And one of the things that has really, uh, I guess, shocked me is uh, I wrote a story about it for my Patreon um, a few days ago, is basically the amount of drugs that has... Uh, that has been around me my whole life. And I noticed that everywhere I stopped, there was a commonality with each stop. And what the commonality was is that every single stop that I have made, still, we all have been traumatized by drugs. And I actually, I'm not down on drugs. I, you know, I get it. I, once upon a time, you know, when I was a teenager, I used to smoke pot and I was a skateboarder and, you know, it was funny. Like we were always on the run. <laughs> we were always trying to hide out, find a place to smoke our joint. And it was, I don't know, it wasn't anything different than what our parents did. So weed was kind of a part of our life, but you know, once in a while we'd get in trouble for it. Um, I got in trouble once I got in a fist fight on a train. Some old dude was trying to basically extort money out of me and old, this old black dude. And, and he didn't want me to get a ticket, uh, without paying him $5 for the, uh, privilege of buying a subway ticket. I told him to go fuck himself. And, uh, we got into it 
it was kind of a sketchy situation. Uh, there was a conductor trying to kick, kick me off the train. It wasn't running yet. Like it was, it was stopped at the station and, um, he saw what was going on with this guy and he's like, get off the train. And I'm like, nah, this is not the neighborhood to do that in. And the dude came up behind me and blasted me in the face. And we, you know, it was pretty, pretty rough situation, but security guard helped me up. The dude totally clocked me from behind. I didn't see it coming cause I was talking to the conductor and I wake up and, uh, the security guard helps me off the train and I go out in the parking lot and I, I think he's being like a good guy, you know, he's like, you know, you're all right. You need some water. <laughs> I just got a fight with a dude like 25 years older than me and I'm in a bad neighborhood. And, uh, as I'm sitting there, you know, talking with the security guard, the cops come. So the cops roll up and they frisk me and do the whole thing, you know, and, um, they go inside my backpack and I have what could only be described as my trusty purple bong, which is a rite of passage in California to have a bong. And if anybody doesn't know what a bong is, it's like a, a, a tall water pipe, I guess, for weed. We'd been smoking pot and playing video games and um, cops go, you know, go through my bag. I think I had a little, a little bit of pot, you know, it was probably the size of your thumb. And uh, I got in trouble for it, man. I had to go um, sit in jail for a couple of days. It was crazy. So I've come back to California, and pot is big business here. And also, I had just come from Colorado, and pot is big business there. And not only is it decriminalized, it's like on billboards. And even my sister, who's like a she's like a psychologist that works in the school system. You know, she take like uses CBD oil and people have like started to realize the medicinal properties of weed. So, you know, drugs don't bother me, but it is kind of crazy what has happened. We have something here called meth and meth, you know, is hardcore stuff. Uh, if anybody ever saw breaking bad, that's exactly what was here. And every stop that I've made, um, somebody's like lost somebody to either death or prison or somebody's kind of like, you know, kind of been zombied by this drug. And my first stop was probably my best friend in the world. I've known him since I was at 17 years old and his wife has struggled with this stuff and for years and she's now homeless. She lives in a tent and her mother currently does math all the time. And, you know, this is, it's so strange watching the same kind of powers at play that destroyed my childhood, destroying other kids' childhoods, like right in front of my face in real time. I think the gift of reflection is looking back and having different perspectives that morph and change as you grow up you grow forward but seeing it happening like real time is is strange because people don't have the gift of that reflection yet it's just kind of happening and when I was there this this woman my friend's ex-wife came by to visit and I'm literally sitting there talking to somebody who lives in a tent at the river and she's playing with her you know her children kind of a visitation type of scenario and it was heart, heart wrenching, man. And it was, it's funny, like after a while I wanted to get out of there 
And I think that my psyche just couldn't really take it anymore. So I go to the next uh, location, which is the Bay Area, and I go to visit a friend. We didn't actually get together in person, but we'd been riding back and forth. But his wife, her brother also has struggled with meth. And I think he lost his kids, like custody. And he was on some kind of house arrest. And the guy's, you know, his life was kind of over before it even, be, like it even began. And so I go to the next place, and it's the same story. And then I go to my hometown, which is Santa Cruz, and I'm looking around at these, like, shelters and stuff. And my sister told me, I didn't even realize it. I lived in a shelter the first year of my life. Um, and my mother was in between, like, a trailer park and, like, this sort of outreach shelter thing and I lived there and then I went to the trailer park you know I was doing this film series about the melting pot of America and um, kind of the sobering reality of what people find when they get here and through the ages what they have found when they got to the American dream or the California dream and that was kind of <clears throat> heavy to see I make my way down I go visit a friend of mine and I visit him and, you know, this is an interesting thing about my, um, my background is that, you know, a lot of my friends are pretty ghetto <laughs> and I say that like really lovingly because, you know, the thing that people don't realize about ghettos and I say ghetto because as a, as a, a term of love is ghettos are actually pretty comforting for people who are from them. And I went to visit my friend in like a legitimate, pretty well-known ghetto called South Central Los Angeles. I'm hanging out with him and my friend has struggled with drug use himself. And I'm sitting there and he was really excited to show me um, virtual reality, right? Because he, he's got this virtual reality set up in his, in his shop. He's pretty, he's pretty successful, like woodworker and stuff. And we're, you know, we're hanging out. And uh, I love this kid to death, and he shows me virtual reality, and I'm not that into it, right? Because, you know, I, I, I'm not that stoked that we have to use our phones every 10 seconds in the world. I see kind of the streamlining of uh, media, social media. I see ADD, like, rife in our culture and young people, and I see little kids just kind of zoning out on video games and, and thinking that's life. And it's really hard for me, someone who's like, you know, hitchhiked and, you know, ridden trains and played music, you know, for my supper really. And then I've, it's, I've had like kind of an earthy journey, you know, and it's hard to see these digital screens, especially, especially companies that, um, know this ain't so hot for kids. Um, the social media platforms that are basically uh, platforms for people to insert their own like sponsored posts. Basically, you know, it's a PR thing. Like, you know, companies have this access to this platform. This platform's got everybody's attention and they could just drop commercials in it basically. And that's where the money is. And just seeing people kind of get strung out on social media or um, young girls dancing around doing these TikToks things. It's hard. It's hard for me to watch it sometimes. So, um, I'm, 
I'm traveling around, I'm reflecting on this, and my friend gives me this virtual reality headset. I put it on, and I'm not gonna lie, you know, um, it's not my bag at all. I'm not totally loving the video game world uh, because I think it swallows people up, but I'm, I'm in it, and I couldn't believe it. It, it, it delivered something that means a lot to me. It delivered travel, which I thought was like mind-blowing. Um, I think we, he showed me like Google Earth VR and some other stuff, and I'm literally in Iceland. <clears throat> like virtual reality is far out, and it's like I'm sitting there. I'm, I hear a bird. I look up. There's the bird. I can look behind myself. I can look down, and he starts explaining to me like avatars that like in the not so distant future, people are going to be able to exist having an alternate personality, an alternate identity where they can meet other people and they don't have to be a 62 year old man living in Palm Springs or a, a, a girl that has to work labor job in Vietnam. Um, they can be a different person. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Um, I don't smoke weed, but it definitely sounded like some kind of crazy weed conversation, but it was real. And he shows me another thing. Um, and and another thing and another thing and I'm like in these environments and it's very convincing I'm in Iceland man I think there was the cliffs of Moore in Ireland there was another thing that I saw that was just like this is unbelievable and there was space stuff I'm in this like kind of space reality and I'm looking back at the earth and it was like a very engulfing kind of feeling like you're in this realm and they've done such a good job with these headsets that it kind of like there's no, it's devoid of any outside light so you're you're basically in a computer screen in a computer world so i take off my virtual reality headset and it has very good like earphones that don't go into your ear they're about an inch off of your ear so it gives you this kind of 360 degree audio uh, environment feeling and they've done a really good job with it and I take the VR headset off and I'm like wow I'm looking at this dusty workshop my friend's currently moving to another shop so it's kind of in disarray you know there's a cat meowing in the corner I can hear loud bass from some homies outside in their car there's like literally a sweatshop next door with like 75 sewing machines and people who are likely illegal or don't speak English like at these sewing machines turning out you know cheap fat, uh, cheap garments I'm in this bad neighborhood the kind of neighborhood where the cops don't really come if something bad happens and my friend's van got broken into recently all his tools were stolen and when you're there, there's always helicopters and they're low flying helicopters and they have like a big spotlight beam and they're looking for criminals. This is the same neighborhood that like Ice Cube sang about. And, you know, it's rough, man. It's not far from Compton where NWA's from. And I thought about this reality. Like I take off my headphones and I'm looking at this rough workshop with these illegal people through the wall and this cat meowing and I'm like this is reality so I just came from a virtual reality that I saw 
you know, beautiful bluffs of Ireland and all this environment. And I, I actually look at reality and it kind of blew me away. I sat back and I started thinking about reality and the fact that we don't really get asked if we want to come here. We just are here. And some people have privilege. Some people grow up with a swimming pool. Some people don't. Some people grow up in Mumbai uh, doing manual labor as a kid. And I'm driving through California and I'm seeing all these people at almost every intersection. You know, there's, there's people with schizophrenia, they're holding signs. There's people who are, you know, handicapped. And it kind of brought up a lot inside of me that, you know, all my friends who, who I left behind to go to New York city to kind of launch my music aspirations that they didn't really get to exit this, this reality. And that I, I started thinking about mankind and like basically the suffering of mankind and like why people reach for drugs. And this meth stuff is so <clears throat> powerful because it's cheap. You can get messed up on meth. You can get pretty high for like 24 hours on 20 bucks. And I, I'm sure you're aware of like, you know, the drug trade going on between America and, and Mexico. And it's really heavy to think about like these meth labs and stuff that are getting drugs over the border. And these people, you know, are making big money and there's college kids and people in clubs and, you know, ingesting this stuff. <clears throat> and if they don't have a strong enough, like, uh, moral fiber or um, guidance, you know, it, it can mess people up. And I also had to come to terms with the fact that I'm, you know, I'm kind of from a lower class background and what that feels like. Um, I, I was marveling at like what the arts did for me and gave me a, it gave me a, an option. And I look at my sister, you know, what she did with her life, she she just believed in education, education, school, college, college, night classes, you know, summer school, whatever. She just barreled through it, and now she works in the school system helping um, kids in, in, in a really difficult district called San Bernardino. So I just thought about reality and what my response to reality was and how I dealt with it. And I have to say, you know, as I'm sitting here in my van looking at a Galleria-type strip mall that is, I guess it would be considered, like, nice, I think, just think about it. Like, I just think about the mortal coil and what it's like to be alive. And people who don't have the Constitution or, like, a real strong uh, drive in them, grit, vim, and vigor, that they get caught. And it's... It's interesting because when I think about a bad neighborhood and I think about a bad frame of mind, um, you know, we want to get away from them and move up on the hill, up, up, up to the hills and not be down amongst the, the struggle. But I can't really get away from the struggle of these people because I love them and I have to walk with this. Once upon a time, there was a documentary about a, a cartoonist named R. Crumb. 
Um, R. Crumb was famous, I believe, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, he had a comic back when comic books were popular called uh, The Fabu Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. And this was kind of like stoner type, you know, comic book rag and people would read it. And he was he was a pretty well-known guy. He was quite successful. And this documentary is about him and his brother. And his brother is in these institutions. He's mentally unstable. I'm not... I'm not sure really what what he was uh, ill with. If it was if it was schizophrenia, manic. I think it, he might have been manic. And in this documentary, his brother is uh, is in touch with R. Crumb through R. Crumb's like successes, right? And R. Crumb's this very eccentric, uh, kind of far out, kooky cartoonist. You know, he's got a mustache. He's a he's a quirky looking dude. But he goes and hangs out with his brother, like visiting him. And what I remember about the documentary was he just accepted his brother for what he was. His brother got put in jail for, I think he pantsed a girl in a drugstore, uh, meaning walking up and just pulling her pants down, which is like extremely savage. But his mind wasn't right. And what I loved about the documentary is R. Crumb sort of carried on with his brother in his life. In acceptance, just that's my brother. He's messed up, and that's not going to get between us. And it was actually really beautiful. And what I love about that is that there are people in society that uh, we kind of leave behind. We leave them to intersections to hold signs. We leave them to run sewing machines and sweatshops. And there's something about people that get left behind that I'm not okay with. Now, I'm a musician. Once upon a time, there was a folky, a folk artist, actually gained quite a bit of acclaim during his time. I think he had a radio show back in the, in the 40s. His name's Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie is in the canon of, of American greats. He would be on the Mount Rushmore of songwriters in American history. A young Robert Zimmerman from Minnesota, a.k.a. Bob Dylan, would glean and scrape as much out of Woody's songbook as he could, and it very much became part of his DNA as a uh, songwriter. And Bob Dylan would go on to be a one-man wrecking ball in songwriting. Basically, Beatlemania and Bob Dylan mania happened at the same time, but Bob was doing it just with a, an acoustic guitar. Now, if you go back to Woody Guthrie, Woody Guthrie sang about people that got left behind. He was never okay with it. Um, that was in a time where uh, communism and um, McCarthyism was rampant, and he really wanted to keep those people with him. Woody's famous for the song, This, this Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, from California to the New York Island. And, you know, he managed to get it into his lyrics. I have to ask myself, like, is this a part of my work? Like, do I need to explore this more? I tried to write a bit about it in, in Anytown Graffiti, my first record. And then I tried, I definitely wrote about it during Risey Sunken Ships. And there's just something about it, you know, like, I'm, I don't want to live up in the hills. And I'm not like a class warrior, but there's just something a little bit off about leaving people behind that I'm not okay with. And I think as I go forward, 
I want to tell stories because for me, there's something about this journey as human beings that I don't think there should be invisible people in our culture. I don't think there should be abandonment like there is. So these are the thoughts that I'm having. And I am up early. I woke up at six today. And all I want to do is develop my skill set to try to tell stories. Because there has to be a voice acknowledging this aspect of our culture. Now, I lived in New York City for 20 years. And you name it, it's there. Jimmy Fallon's there, Wall Street's there, Central Park's there, wealth, real, real wealth. And before I actually got to quit my day job and, and do music full time, I had struggled for many years being a bartender. I was a truck driver. I, I used to take care of disabled people. I did a lot of different stuff. And one of the jobs that was very interesting was bartending because you had Coke dealers and you had basically professionals that would come in, school teachers and stuff like that. And they would come for the happy hour crowd. And then it'd come, you know, happy hour at end, it'd be seven, eight, nine. Then the, then the like, you know, the, the real alcoholics that would be there all night would, would be right there on their stool and they'd stay there all night. Then the drug dealers would come in selling Coke around 10 o'clock at night. They'd stay till four and they, uh, definitely made more money than I did. And it was just interesting to watch the classes come through those doors. But the most fascinating job I had was the truck driving job. I worked for an art handling company. Actually, Eric from Augustine's and I both worked together. Now, because I wasn't a technical um, craftsman and woodworker um, at the time, I didn't really know how to work a drill and hammer and measurements and all that. I love that stuff now. But I would drive and we would deliver fine art. And I went to some incredible properties. I went to George Lucas's house. I went to Ralph Lauren's house. I went to Madonna's house. I went to a countless sprawling estates, David Bowie. Eric would go to Lenny Kravitz's house. We would, we would, I went to Madonna's place. Like we would go to these 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 houses and see where these people cook and shit and live and flop on the couch and nap and do their phone calls back home to their mother and it was very interesting to see this opulence and in the very large houses like George Lucas's house like what you would find is they always had like an assistant and that they stayed on the grounds and it was their job to kind of run the the manor as it were and you would be there and you're looking around and you're like, wow, the whole MO in the, on this property with this assistant greeting whatever deliveries were coming, and whatever was going on, their whole job is to, to, to distance themselves from the world and create their own group um, like an elitism and stay in this group in this gated community and conduct their careers and their lives from that perch. And while I'm not Woody Guthrie, there's something about that that has been going on back to castles and manors that go back, you know, properties at colonial times and so on. There's always been the wealthy class. Well, I don't feel like a class warrior. I just hope that 
this feeling stays with me through my work because um, I am a family member of people who were on those sidewalks with those signs. And I try to put it in my music. I try to put it in my performances. And uh, I try to put it in my work. And I really am committed to that. Okay, so this has been a long podcast so far. I wanted to talk about musical crushes. And I guess you could say, as songwriters, we we all sort of study music, you know, and, and it might look like listening with headphones, but often we're, you know, wow, what's that drum sound? Oh, that's a, that's a very vintage bass sound. Okay, this is, you know, wow, this is Antonina Johnson's, or I think Anoni is, is her name now. Uh, wow, how, listen to the vibrato in their voice. That's fascinating. Where's that coming from? Wow, that sounds kind of like Nina Simone. And you kind of, it's funny, um, I had a friend of mine named Scott Hutchison. We went, we went on a, a tour with uh, Frightened Rabbit, a pretty long one. And as I got to know Scott, I started realizing what he had access to in Scotland um, during the 90s was it was sort of limited like uh he he really liked like Soundgarden and stuff you know and i didn't really like Soundgarden, but it's funny where we all we all have to get our start somewhere and uh as i'm sitting there listening i found this guy right if you listen to bruce springsteen you can hear the timbre in his voice he's got something else going on he definitely does the one four five kind of Americana blues. So his band starting out, the E Street band starting out in New Jersey playing clubs, they had to play covers. and you know, they played rock and roll in the sixties, in the mid sixties, right? Bruce started in high school. But he had this timbre and I've long, long had a theory that I think Bruce was a large Roy Orbison fan. And I, you know, I, I, I got woken up the other night, something was scurrying around on the roof of my van, <laughs> and I couldn't get back to sleep, and I decided to uh, check out Roy Orbison. I think, I think my theory is correct, because I can hear a little bit of uh, where Bruce, what Bruce got from him. But I'm listening to Roy Orbison, and I'm like, bang still happens to this day i have a musical crush it's roy orbison i'm listening to this guy's vibrato i'm listening to this this guy's range i remember when mariah carey came out she said she had like you know six octaves or something crazy and uh modern western music's interesting like that because you know some people are really really gifted and i'm listening to roy orbison i'm looking at a picture of him he looks like the creepiest prowler talk about van life he looks like a creepy child molester <laughs> i'm not gonna lie man he looks creepy he's got these these weird like you know you ever see somebody that's wearing sunglasses but they're actually like lenses he's got that and the lenses are so coke bottled and so powerful that his eyes look kind of blurry and weird and he's got this pompadour and i'm sitting there i'm like wow let's look at this dude and i start reading about him as i'm laying there in the van and i'm like wow this dude played with elvis he was friends with elvis he was in the sun records thing with johnny cash Dwayne eddy and he was talking about his background i started watching interviews with him incredibly articulate 
incredibly compassionate and a real romantic. And I say this like in the same vein as a Brian Wilson, maybe from the Beach Boys. And as you watch this guy's progression, what's different about Roy Orbison uh, is that his career lasted. He actually died when he was 52, which is incredibly young. Elvis died, I think, when he was 42. But the contribution to modern music is immeasurable. Elvis is a weird character. He looked like a fat guy in an evil Knievel outfit singing in Hawaii with lays on him and stuff. I thought he was, he just wasn't for me. But as I'm getting older, if you really want to find an artist that encapsulates that 1950s time and then see what would happen if they survived into the 80s and 90s, Roy Orbison is your guy. Some of it, you know, like when you listen to Dire Straits or something, or one of those bands that, you know, they're, or like the replacements, when they're kind of a casualty of their time, like you hear those chorus pedals and those big like this big 80s sounds. Roy had a little bit of that, but what you see is this very intensive focus on production and string sections. And this dude, I was reading, Roy had like 20 two hits in a six-year period that is unbelievable we will never see that again uh and as i'm listening to this guy some of it's hard to listen to but it, I, I like to think of it as almost like uh it's like it's tough stuff it's like good medicine it's like slurping down cough syrup or something you know it's good for you it doesn't taste that great so some of roy's stuff has some crazy reverb on it the the later the latter 80s stuff but what you're really hearing is you're hearing a guy from the 1950s that played with Johnny Cash. You're hearing what would happen if Sun Records got airlifted and dropped in the 1980s. And there's just, I'm like, wow, I feel like I found uh, something that I'm going to sit and dissect. And this is what happens uh, when you're a creative. You start developing your own DNA and sort of... Uh, picking out parts from an old scrapyard and putting it into your own creation. And I just wanted to share with you that uh, I still have musical crushes after all these years and I'm still extremely tickled. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, I tried Tom Jones. Um, Tom Jones is crazy. Like, I actually love Frank Sinatra. I think this dude was kind of trying to do this, like, Frank Sinatra Vegas thing. Some people love him. I was like, are you kidding me? Six bomb, six bomb, seven, seven bomb. It's like, it's like these, it's like gusts of hot air of just schmarmy, Vegasy, weird, bare-chested necklaces. And I was like, come on, Bill, hang in there, man. We can do it. Just hang in there. Like, you can see the good in this. And I was trying, and I'm like, ah, oh, it's just too corny. Damn it. Maybe I'm not there yet. Maybe I'm not there yet. I was like that, you know, with the with the Rat Pack and the Sinatra and Dean Martin, but I get it now. Bing Crosby, even before them, like, I get it. But yeah, sometimes it's a swing and a miss. Sometimes it's a Bam, you connect with it. So thumbs up, Roy Orbison, struggling with Tom Jones. That's where I'm at. And I just want to say thank you for listening to this uh, podcast. I'm going to continue on with uh, my day. I'm going to start filming something right now. And I just want to say, I know it's a little early, but happy holidays to everybody. You've been listening to Onward with William McCarthy, live from California. California.